He must not have been. He was gone. Caraman stood up, his fists clenched, his face distorted with anger. Sturm grabbed hold of him and shoved him backwards as Riverwind stepped in front of Giltanas. All have a right to speak and all have a right to respond in their own defense. The plainsman said in his deep voice, The elf has spoken. Let us hear from your brother. Why should I speak? Raceland whispered harshly, his voice soft and lethal with hatred. None of you trusts me. So why should you believe me? I refuse to answer. And you may think as you choose. If you believe I am a traitor, kill me now. I will not stop you. He began to cough. You'll have to kill me too, Caraman said in a choked voice. He led his brother back to his bed. Tannis felt sick. Double watches all night. No, not you, Eben. Sturm, you and Flint first. Riverwind and I'll take the second. Tannis slumped down on the floor, his head on his arms. We've been betrayed, he thought. One of those three is a traitor, and has been all along. The guards might come at any moment. Or perhaps Verminard was more subtle, some trap to catch us all. Then Tannis saw it all with sickening clarity. Of course, Verminard would use the revolt as an excuse to kill the hostages and the cleric. He could always get more slaves, who would have a horrible example before their eyes of what happened to those who disobeyed him, this plan. Gilthanas's plan played right into his hands. We should abandon it, Tannis thought wildly. Then he forced himself to calm down. No, the people were too excited. Following Elistan's miraculous healing and his announced determination to study these ancient gods, the people had hope. They believed that the gods had truly come back to them. But Tannis had seen the other high seekers look at Elistan, jealously. He knew that, though they made a show of supporting the new leader, given time they would try to subvert him. Perhaps even now they were moving among the people, spreading doubt. If we backed out now, they'd never trust us again, Tannis thought. We must go ahead, no matter how great the risk. Besides, perhaps he was wrong. Maybe there was no traitor. Hoping, he fell into a fitful sleep. The night passed in silence. Dawn filtered through the gaping hole in the tower of the fortress. Tass blinked, then sat up, rubbing his eyes, wondering for a moment where he was. I'm in a big room, he thought, staring up at a high ceiling that had a hole cut in it to allow the dragon access to the outside. There are two other doors besides the one Fizban and I came through last night. Fizban, the dragon! Tass groaned, remembering. He hadn't meant to fall asleep. He and Fizban had only been waiting until the dragon slept to rescue Seston. Now it was morning, perhaps it was too late. Fearfully, Mackender crept to the balcony and peered over the edge. No. He sighed in relief. The dragon was asleep. Seston slept too, worn out with fear. 
Now was their chance. Tasselhoff crawled back to the mage. Old one, he whispered. Wake up. He shook him. What? Who? Fire? The mage sat up, peering around blearily. Where? Run for the exits. No, not a fire. Tass sighed. It's morning. Here's your hat. He handed it to the magician who was groping around, searching for it. What happened to the puffball of light? Humph! Fizban sniffed. I sent it back. Kept me awake, shining in my eyes. We were supposed to stay awake, remember? Tass said in exasperation. Rescue Seston from the dragon? How were we going to do that? Fizban asked eagerly. You were the one with the plan. I was. Dear, dear, the old magician blinked. Was it a good one? You didn't tell me, Tass nearly shouted. Then he calmed down. All you said was that we had to rescue Seston before breakfast, because Gully Dwarf might start looking more appetizing to a dragon who hadn't eaten in twelve hours. That makes sense, Fizban conceded. Are you sure I said it? Look, said Tasselhoff patiently. All we really need is a long rope to throw down to him. Can't you magic that up? Rope? Fizban glared at him. As if I'd stoop so low. That is an insult to one of my skill. Help me stand. Tass helped the mage stand. I didn't mean to insult you, the kender said. And I know there's nothing fancy about rope, and you are very skilled. It's just that... Oh, all right. Tass gestured toward the balcony. Go ahead. I just hope we all survive. He muttered under his breath. I won't let you down, or Seston either, for that matter. Fizban promised, beaming. The two peeked over the balcony. Everything was as before. Seston lay in a corner. The dragon slept soundly. Fizban closed his eyes, concentrating. He murmured eerie words. Then stretched his thin hand through the railing of the balcony and began to make a lifting motion. Tasselhoff, watching, felt his heart fly up in his throat. Stop! He gurgled. You've got the wrong one! Fizban's eyes flew open to see the red dragon, Pyros, slowly rising off the floor, his body still curled in sleep. Oh, dear! The magician gasped, and quickly saying different words, he reversed the spell, lowering the dragon to the ground. Missed my aim, the mage said. Now I'm zeroed in. Let's try again. Tass heard the eerie words again. This time, Seston began to rise off the floor and, breath by breath, came level with the balcony. Fizban's face grew red with exertion. He's almost here. Keep going, Tass said, hopping up and down in excitement. Guided by Fizban's hand, Seston sailed peacefully over the balcony. He came to rest on the dusty floor, still asleep. Seston, Tass whispered, putting his hand over the gully dwarf's mouth so that he wouldn't yell. Seston, it's me, Tasselhoff. Wake up. The gully dwarf opened his eyes. His first thought was that Verminard had decided to feed him to a vicious kender instead of the dragon. Then the gully dwarf recognized his friend. 
and went limp with relief. You're safe, but don't say a word, the kender warned. The dragon can still hear us. He was interrupted by a loud booming from below. The gully dwarf sat up in alarm. Shh, said Taz. Probably just the door into the dragon's lair. He hurried back to the balcony where Fizban was peering through the railing. What is it? The dragon, High Lord. Fizban pointed to the second level where Verminard stood on a ledge overlooking the dragon. Ember! Awaken! Verminard yelled down at the sleeping dragon. I have received reports of intruders. That cleric is here, inciting the slaves to rebellion. Pyros stirred and slowly opened his eyes, awakening from a disturbing dream in which he'd seen a gully dwarf fly. Shaking his giant head to clear away the sleep, he heard Verminard ranting about clerics. He yawned. So the dragon high lord had found out the cleric was in the fortress. Pyros supposed he'd have to deal with this now, after all. Do not trouble yourself, my lord. Pyros began, then stopped abruptly, staring at something very strange. Trouble myself, Verminard fumed. Why, I... He stopped, too. The object at which both stared was drifting down through the air, gently as a feather. Fizban's hat. Tannis woke everyone in the darkest hour before dawn. Well, said Sturm, do we go ahead? We have no choice, Tannis said grimly, looking at the group. If one of you has betrayed us, then he must live with the knowledge that he has brought about the deaths of innocents. Verminard will kill not only us, but the hostages as well. I pray that there is no traitor, and so I'm going ahead with our plans. No one said anything, but each glanced sideways at the others, suspicion gnawing at all of them. When the women were awake, Tannis went over the plan again. My friends and I will sneak up to the children's room with Marita, disguised as the women who usually bring the children breakfast. We'll lead them to the courtyard, Tannis said quietly. You must go about your business as you do every morning. When you are allowed into the exercise area, get the children and start moving immediately toward the mines. Your menfolk will handle the guards there, and you can escape safely into the mountains to the south, do you understand? The women nodded silently as they heard the sound of the guards approaching. This is it, Tannis said softly. Back to your work. The women scattered. Tannis beckoned to Tika and Lorana. If we have been betrayed, you will both be in great danger. Since you'll be guarding the women, he began. We'll all be in great danger. Lorana amended coldly. She hadn't slept all night. She knew that if she released the tight bands she had wrapped around her soul, fear would overwhelm her. Tannis saw none of this inner turmoil. He thought she appeared unusually pale and exceptionally beautiful this morning. A long-time campaigner himself, his preoccupation made him forget the terrors of a first battle. 
Clearing his throat, he said, huskily, Tika, take my advice. Keep your sword in your scabbard. You're less dangerous that way. Tika giggled and nodded nervously. Go say goodbye to Caraman, Tanis told her. Tika blushed crimson and, giving Tanis and Lorana a meaningful look, ran off. Tanis gazed at Lorana steadily for a moment and, for the first time, saw that her jaw muscles were clenched so tightly the tendons in her neck were stretched. He reached out to hold her, but she was stiff and cold as a draconian's corpse. You don't have to do this, Tanis said, releasing her. This isn't your fight. Go to the mines with the other women. Lorana shook her head, waiting to speak until she was certain her voice was under control. Tika is not trained for fighting. I am. No matter if it was ceremonial. She smiled bitterly at Tanis's look of discomfiture. I will do my part, Tanis. His human name came awkwardly to her lips. Otherwise, you might think I am a traitor. Lorana, please believe me, Tanis sighed. I don't think Gilfanas is a traitor any more than you do. It's just... Damn it, there are so many lives at stake, Lorana, can't you realize? Feeling his hands on her arms shake, she looked up at him and saw the anguish and the fear in his own face, mirroring the fear she felt inside. Only his was not fear for himself. It was fear for others. She drew a deep breath. I am sorry, Tennis, she said. You are right. Look, the guards are here. It is time to go. She turned and walked away without looking back. It didn't occur to her until it was too late that Tannis might have been silently asking for comfort himself. Marita and Gold Moon led the companions up a flight of narrow stairs to the first level. The Draconian guards didn't accompany them, saying something about special duty. Tanis asked Marita if that was usual, and she shook her head, her face worried. They had no choice but to go on. Six gully dwarves trailed after them, carrying heavy pots of what smelled like oatmeal. They paid little attention to the women until Caraman stumbled over his skirt, climbing the stairs and fell to his knees, uttering a very unladylike oath. The gully dwarves' eyes opened wide. Don't even squeak, Flint said, whirling around to face them, a knife flashing in his hand. The gully dwarves cowered against the wall, shaking their heads frantically, the pots clattering. The companions reached the top of the stairs and stopped. We crossed this hall to the door, Marita pointed. Oh, no, she grasped Tanis's arm. There's a guard on the door. It's never guarded. Hush. It could be coincidence, Tanis said reassuringly, although he knew it wasn't. Just keep on as we planned. Marita nodded fearfully and walked across the hall. Guards. Tanis turned to Sturm. Be ready. 
Remember, quick and deadly. No noise. According to Gilfinus's map, the playroom was separated from the children's sleeping quarters by two rooms. The first was a storeroom which Marita reported was lined with shelves containing toys and clothing and other items. A tunnel ran through this room to the second, the room that housed the dragon, Flamestrike. Poor thing, Marita had said when discussing the plan with Tannis. She is as much a prisoner as we are. The Dragon High Lord never allows her out. I think they're afraid she'll wander off. They've even built a tunnel through the storeroom, too small for her to fit through. Not that she wants to get out, but I think she might like to watch the children play. Tannis regarded Marita dubiously, wondering if they might encounter a dragon very different from the mad, feeble creature she described. Beyond the dragon's lair was the room where the children slept. This was the room they would have to enter, to wake the children, and lead them outdoors. The playroom connected directly with the courtyard through a huge door locked with a great oaken beam. More to keep the dragon in than us, Marita stated. It must be just about dawning, Tannis thought as they emerged from the stairwell and turned toward the playroom. The torchlight cast their shadows ahead of them. Pax Tharkis was quiet, deathly quiet. Too quiet for a fortress preparing for war. Four draconian guards stood huddled together talking at the doorway to the playroom. Their conversation broke off as they saw the women approach. Gold Moon and Marita walked in front. Gold Moon's hood was drawn back, her hair glimmering in the torchlight. Directly behind Gold Moon came Riverwind. Bent over a staff, the plainsman was practically walking on his knees. Caraman and Raistlin followed, the mage staying close to his brother. Then Eben and Gilfinas. All the traitors together, as Raistlin had sarcastically observed, Flint brought up the rear, turning occasionally to glower at the panic-stricken gully dwarves. You're early this morning, a draconian growled. The women clustered like chickens in a half-circle around the guards and stood, waiting patiently to be allowed inside. It smells of thunder, Marita said sharply. I want the children to have their exercise before the storm hits. And what are you doing here? The door is never guarded. You'll frighten the children. One of the Draconians made some comment in their harsh language, and two of the others grinned, showing rows of pointed teeth. The spokesman only snarled. Lord Verminard's command. He and Ember are gone this morning to finish the elves. We're ordered to search you before you enter. The Draconian's eyes fastened onto Gold Moon hungrily. That's going to be a pleasure, I'd say. For you, maybe, muttered another guard, staring at Sturm in disgust. I've never seen an uglier female in my life, and— <clears throat> The creature slumped over, a dagger thrust deep into its ribs. The other three Draconians died within seconds. Caraman wrapped his hands around the neck of one, Eben hit his in the stomach, and Flint lobbed off its head with an axe as it fell. Tannis stabbed the leader through the heart with his sword. 
He started to let go of the weapon, expecting it to remain stuck in the creature's stony corpse. To his amazement, his new sword slid out of the stone carcass as easily as if it had been nothing more than goblin flesh. He had no time to ponder this strange occurrence. The gully dwarves, catching sight of the flash of steel, dropped their pots and ran wildly down the corridor. Never mind them. Tannis snapped at Flint. Into the playroom. Hurry! Stepping over the bodies, he flung the door open. If anyone finds these bodies, it'll be over, Caraman said. It was over before we began, Sturm muttered angrily. We've been betrayed, so it's just a matter of time. Keep moving, Tannis said sharply, shutting the door behind them. Be very quiet, Marita whispered. Flamestrike generally sleeps soundly. If she does waken, act like women. She'll never recognize you. She's blind in one eye. The chill dawn light filtered in through tiny windows high above the floor, shining on a grim, cheerless playroom. A few well-used toys lay scattered about. There was no furniture. Caraman walked over to inspect the huge wooden beam barring the double doors that led to the courtyard outside. I can manage, he said. The big man appeared to lift the beam effortlessly, then set it against the wall and shoved on the door. Not locked from the outside, he reported. I guess they didn't expect us to get this far. Or perhaps Lord Verminard wants us out there, Tannis thought. He wondered if what the Draconian said was true. Had the dragon High Lord and the dragon really gone, or were they... Angrily, he wrenched his mind back. It doesn't matter, he told himself. We have no choice. We must go on. Flint, stay here, he said. If anyone comes, warn us first. Then fight. Flint nodded and took a position just inside the door leading to the corridor, first opening at a crack to see. The draconian bodies had turned to dust on the floor. Marita took a torch from the wall. Lighting it, she led the companions through a dark archway, into the tunnel leading to the dragon's lair. Fispan, your hat! Tass risked whispering. Too late. The old magician made a grab for it, but missed. Spies! yelled Verminard in a rage, pointing up to the balcony. Capture the member! I want them alive! Alive? The dragon repeated to himself. No, that could not be. Pyros recalled the strange sound he had heard last night, and he knew without a doubt that these spies had overheard him talking about the green gemstone man. Only a privileged few knew that dread secret, the great secret. The secret that would conquer the world for the Queen of Darkness. These spies must die, and the secret die with them. Pyros spread his wings and launched himself into the air, using his powerful back legs to propel himself from the floor with tremendous speed. This is it, thought Tasselhoff. Now we've done it. There's no escape this time. 
Just as he resigned himself to being cooked by a dragon, he heard the magician shout a single word of command, and a thick, unnatural darkness almost knocked the kender over. Run! panted Fizban, grabbing the kender's hand and dragging Tass to his feet. Seston! I've got him! Run! Tasselhoff ran. They flew out the door and into the gallery. Then he had no idea where he was going. He just kept hold of the old man and ran. Behind him, he could hear the sound of the dragon whooshing up out of his lair, and he heard the dragon's voice. So you are a magic user, are you, spy? Pyros shouted. We can't have you running around in the dark. You might get lost. Let me light your way. Tasselhoff heard a great intake of breath into a giant body. Then flames crackled and burned around him. The darkness vanished, driven away by the fire's flaring light. But to his amazement, Tass wasn't touched by the flame. He looked at Fizban, hatless, running next to him. They were in the gallery still, heading for the double doors. The kender twisted his head. Behind him loomed the dragon, more horrible than anything he had imagined, more terrifying than the black dragon in Zaktsaroth. The dragon breathed on them again, and once more Tass was enveloped by flame. The paintings on the walls blazed, furniture burned, curtains flared like torches, smoke filled the room. But none of it touched him, Manceston and Fizban. Tasselhoff looked at the mage in admiration, truly impressed. How long can you keep this up? He shouted to Fizban as they wheeled around a corner, the double bronze doors in sight. The old man's eyes were wide and staring. I have no idea, he gasped. I didn't know I could do it at all. Another blast of flame exploded around them. This time, Tasselhoff felt the heat and glanced at Fizban in alarm. The mage nodded. I'm losing it, he cried. Hang on, Tasselhoff panted. We're almost to the door. He can't get through it. The three pushed through the bronze double doors that led from the gallery back into the hallway, just as Fizban's magic spell wore off. Before them was the secret door, still open, that led to the mechanism room. Tasselhoff flung the bronze doors shut and stopped a moment to catch his breath. But just as he was about to say, we made it, one of the dragon's huge clawed feet broke through the stone wall right above the kender's head. Seston, giving a shriek, headed for the stairs. No! Tasselhoff grabbed him. That leads to Verminard's quarters. Back to the mechanism room, Fizban cried. They dashed through the secret door just as the stone wall gave way with a tremendous crash. But they could not shut the door. I have a lot to learn about dragons, apparently, Tass muttered. I wonder if there are any good books on the subject. So I have run you rats into your hole, and now you are trapped, boomed Pyros's voice from outside. You have nowhere to go, and stone walls do not stop me. There was a terrible, grinding and grating sound. The walls of the mechanism room trembled. 
then began to crack. It was a nice try, Tass said ruefully. That last spell was a doozy, almost worth getting killed by a dragon to see. Killed? Fizban seemed to wake up. By a dragon? I should say not. I've never been so insulted. There must be a way out. His eyes began to gleam. Down the chain! The chain? repeated Tass, thinking he must have misunderstood, what with the walls cracking around him and the dragon roaring and all. We'll crawl down the chain. Come on! Cackling with delight, the old mage turned and ran down the tunnel. Seston looked dubiously at Tasselhoff, but just then the dragon's huge claw appeared through the wall. The kender and the gully dwarf turned and ran after the old magician. By the time they reached the great wheel, Fizban had already crawled along the chain leading from the tunnel and reached the first tree-trunk tooth of the wheel itself. Tucking his robes up around his thighs, he dropped down from the tooth onto the first rung of the huge chain. The kender and gully dwarf swung onto the chain after him. Tass was just beginning to think they might get out of this alive after all, especially if the dark elf at the bottom of the chain had taken the day off, when Pyros burst suddenly into the shaft where the great chain hung. Sections of the stone tunnel caved in around them falling to the ground with a hollow, booming thud. The walls shuddered, and the chain started to tremble. Above them hovered the dragon. He did not speak, but simply stared at them with his red eyes. Then he drew in a huge breath that seemed to suck in the air of the whole valley. Tass started instinctively to close his eyes, then opened them wide. He'd never seen a dragon breathe fire, and he wasn't going to miss seeing it now, especially as it would probably be his last chance. Flames billowed out from the dragon's nose and mouth. The blast from the heat alone nearly knocked Tasselhoff off the chain, but once again the fire burned all around him and did not touch him. Fizban cackled with delight. Quite clever, old man, said the dragon angrily. But I, too, am a magic user, and I feel you weakening. I hope your cleverness amuses you all the way down. Flames flared out again, but this time the dragon's fire was not aimed at the trembling figures clinging to the chain. The flames struck the chain itself, and the iron links began to glow red-hot at the first touch of the dragon fire. Pyros breathed again, and the links burned white-hot. The dragon breathed a third time. The links melted. The massive chain gave a great shudder and broke, plunging into the darkness below. Pyros watched as it plummeted down. Then, satisfied that the spies would not live to tell their tale, he flew back to his lair where he could hear Verminard shouting for him. In the darkness, left behind by the dragon, the great cog wheel, free of the chain that had held it in place for centuries, gave a groan and began to turn. Chapter 9 
Chapter 14 Matafleur The Magic Sword White Feathers Light from Marita's torch illuminated a large, barren, windowless room. There was no furniture. The only objects in the chill stone chamber were a huge basin of water, a bucket filled with what smelled like rotten meat, and a dragon. Tanis caught his breath. He had thought the black dragon in Zaktsaroth formidable. He was truly awed at the massive size of this red dragon. Her lair was enormous, probably over one hundred feet in diameter, and the dragon stretched the length of it, the tip of her long tail lying against the far wall. For a moment the companions stood stunned, with ghastly visions of the giant head rising up and searing them with the burning flame breathed by the red dragons, the flames that had destroyed Solace. Marita did not appear worried, however. She advanced steadily into the room, and, after a moment's hesitation, the companions hurried after her. As they drew closer to the creature, they could see that Marita had been right. The dragon was clearly in pitiful condition. The great head that lay on the cold stone floor was lined and wrinkled with age. The brilliant red skin, grayish and mottled. She breathed noisily through her mouth. Her jaws parted to reveal the once sword-sharp teeth, now yellowed and broken. Long scars ran along her sides. Her leathery wings were dry and cracked. Now Tanis could understand Marita's attitude. Clearly the dragon had been ill-used, and he caught himself feeling pity, relaxing his guard. He realized how dangerous this was when the dragon, awakened by the torchlight, stirred in her sleep. Her talons were as sharp, and her fire as destructive as any other red dragon on Kryn, Tanis reminded himself sharply. The dragon's eyes opened, slits of glistening red in the torchlight. The companions halted, hands on their weapons. Is it time for breakfast already, Marita? Matafleur, Flamestrike being her name to common mortals, said in a sleepy, husky voice. Yes, we're just a bit early today, dearie, Marita said soothingly. But there's a storm brewing, and I want the children to have their exercise before it breaks. Go back to sleep. I'll see they don't wake you on their way out. I don't mind, the dragon yawned and opened her eyes a bit further. Now Tanis could see that one of them had a milky covering. She was blind in that eye. I hope we don't have to fight her, Tanis, Sturm whispered. It'd be like fighting someone's grandmother. Tanis forced his expression to harden. She's a deadly grandmother, Sturm. Just remember that. The little ones had a restful night, the dragon murmured, apparently drifting off to sleep again. See that they don't get wet if it does storm, Marita. Especially little Eric. He had a cold last week. Her eyes closed. Turning, Marita beckoned the others on, putting her finger to her lips. Sturm and Tanis came last. 
their weapons and armor, muffled by numerous cloaks and skirts. Tanis was about thirty feet from the dragon's head when the noise started. At first, he thought it was his imagination, that his nervousness was making him hear a buzzing sound in his head, but the sound grew louder and louder, and Sturm turned, staring at him in alarm. The buzzing sound increased until it was like a thousand swarming locusts. Now the others were looking back too, all of them staring at him. Tanis looked at his friends, helplessly, an almost comic look of confusion on his face. The dragon snorted and stirred in irritation, shaking her head as though the noise hurt her ears. Suddenly, Raceland broke from the group and ran back to Tanis. The sword! he hissed. He grabbed the half-elf's cloak and threw it back to reveal the blade. Tanis stared down at the sword in its antique scabbard. The mage was right. The blade hummed as if in the highest state of alarm. Now that Raceland called his attention to it, the half-elf could actually feel the vibrations. Magic, the mage said softly, studying it with interest. Can you stop it? yelled Tanis over the weird noise. No, said Raceland. I remember now. This is the Worm Slayer, the famed magical sword of Kith Cannon. It is reacting to the presence of the dragon. This is an abysmal time to remember, Tanis said in a fury. Or a very convenient time, snarled Sturm. The dragon slowly raised her head, her eyes blinking, her thin stream of smoke drifting from a nostril. She focused her bleary red eyes on Tanis, pain and irritation in her gaze. Who have you brought, Marita? Matafleur's voice was filled with menace. I hear a sound I have not heard in centuries. I smell the foul smell of steel. These are not the women. These are warriors. Don't hurt her. Marita wailed. I may not have any choice, Tanis said viciously, drawing Wormslayer from its sheath. Riverwind and Gold Moon, get Marita out of here. The blade began to shine with a brilliant white light as the buzzing grew louder and angrier. Matafleur shrank back. The light of the sword pierced her good eye painfully. The terrible sound went through her head like a spear, whimpering. She huddled away from Tanis. Run, get the children! Tanis yelled, realizing that they didn't need to fight, at least not yet. Holding the shining sword high in the air, he moved forward cautiously, driving the pitiful dragon back against the wall. Marita, after one fearful glance at Tanis, led Gold Moon to the children's room. About one hundred children were wide-eyed with alarm over the strange sounds outside their chamber. Their faces relaxed at the sight of Marita and Gold Moon, and a few of the littler ones actually giggled when Caraman came rushing in, his skirts flapping around his armored legs. But at the sight of warriors and their drawn weapons, the children sobered immediately. What is it, Marita? asked the oldest girl. What's happening? Is it fighting again? 
We hope there'll be no fighting, dear one, Marita said softly. But I'll not lie to you. It may come to that. Now I want you to gather your things, particularly your warm cloaks, and come with us. The older of you carry the wee ones, as you do when we go outdoors for exercise. Sturm expected confusion and wailing and demands for explanation. But the children quickly did as they were told, wrapping themselves in warm clothing and helping to dress the younger ones. They were quiet and calm, if a bit pale. These were children of war, Sturm remembered. I want you to move very swiftly through the dragon's lair and out into the playroom. When we get there, the big man, Sturm gestured to Caraman, will lead you out into the courtyard. Your mothers are waiting for you there. When you get outside, look immediately for your mother and go to her. Does everyone understand? He glanced dubiously at the smaller children, but the girl at the front of the line nodded. We understand, sir, she said. All right. Sturm turned. Caraman. The warrior, flushing in embarrassment as one hundred pairs of eyes turned to look at him, led the way back into the dragon's lair. Gold Moon scooped up a toddler in her arms. Marita picked up another one. The older boys and girls carried little ones on their backs. They hurried out the door in orderly fashion, without saying a word, until they saw Tanis, the gleaming sword, and the terrified dragon. Hey, you! Don't hurt our dragon! One little boy yelled, leaving his place in line. The child ran up to Tanis, his fists raised, his face twisted into a snarl. Duggle! cried the oldest girl, shocked. Get back in line this instant! But some of the children were crying now. Tanis, the sword still raised, knowing that this was the only thing keeping the dragon at bay, shouted, Get them out of here! Children, please! Chieftain's daughter, her voice stern and commanding, brought order to the chaos. Tanis will not hurt the dragon if he does not have to. He is a gentle man. You must leave now. Your mothers need you. There was an edge of fear in Gold Moon's voice, a feeling of urgency that influenced even the youngest child. They got back into line quickly. Goodbye, Flamestrike! Several of the children called out, wistfully, waving their hands as they followed Caraman. Duggle gave Tanis one final threatening glance. Then he returned to line, wiping his eyes with grubby fists. No! shrieked Matafleur in a heartbroken voice. No! Don't fight my children, please! It is me you want! Fight me! Don't harm my children! Tanis realized the dragon was back in her past, reliving whatever terrible event had deprived her of her children. Sturm stayed near Tannis. She's going to kill you when the children are out of danger, you know. Yes, said Tannis grimly. Already the dragon's eyes, even the bad eye, were flaring red. Saliva dripped from the great, gaping mouth, and her talons scratched the floor. Not my children, she said with rage. I'm with you, Sturm began, drawing his sword. Leave us, knight, Raceland whispered softly from the shadows. 
Your weapon is useless. I will stay with Tannis. The half-elf glanced at the mage in astonishment. Raceland's strange golden eyes met his, knowing what he was thinking. Do I trust him? Raceland gave him no help, almost as if he were goading him to refusal. Get out! Tannis said to Sturm. What? he yelled. Are you crazy? You're trusting this? Get out! Tannis repeated. At that moment, he heard Flint yelling loudly. Go, Sturm! They need you out there! The knight stood a moment, irresolute. But he could not, in honor, ignore a direct order from one he considered his commander. Casting a baleful glance at Raceland, Sturm turned on his heel and entered the tunnel. There is little magic I can work against a red dragon, Raceland whispered swiftly. Can you buy us time? Tannis asked. Raceland smiled, the smile of one who knows death is so near it is past fearing. I can, he whispered. Move back near the tunnel. When you hear me start to speak, run. Tannis began backing up, still holding the sword high. But the dragon no longer feared its magic. She knew only that her children were gone and she must kill those responsible. She lunged directly at the warrior with the sword as he began to run toward the tunnel. Then darkness descended upon her. A darkness so deep Matafleur thought for a horrible moment she had lost the sight of the other eye. She heard whispered words of magic and knew the robed human had cast a spell. I'll burn them! she howled, sniffing the smell of steel through the tunnel. They will not escape! But just as she sucked in a great breath, she heard another sound. The sound of her children. No! She realized in frustration. I dare not. My children! I might harm my children! Her head drooped down on the cold stone floor. Tannis and Raceland ran down the tunnel, the half-elf dragging the weakened mage with him. Behind them, they heard a pitiful, heartbroken moan. Not my children! Please fight me! Don't hurt my children! Tannis emerged from the tunnel into the playroom, blinking in the bright light as Caraman swung the huge doors open to the rising sun. The children raced out the door into the courtyard. Through the door, Tanis could see Tika and Lorana standing with their swords drawn, looking their way anxiously. A draconian lay crumbling on the floor of the playroom, Flint's battle-axe stuck in its back. Outside, all of you, Tanis shouted. Flint, retrieving his battle-axe, joined the half-elf as the last to leave the playroom, as they did so, they heard a terrifying roar, the roar of a dragon, but a very different dragon than the pitiful Matafleur. Pyros had discovered the spies. The stone walls began to tremble. The dragon was rising from her lair. Ember! Tanis swore bitterly. He hasn't gone. The dwarf shook his head. 
I'll bet my beard, he said gloomily, that Tasselhoff's involved. The broken chain plummeted to the stone floor of the chain room in the Slamori, three little figures falling with it. Tasselhoff, clinging uselessly to the chain, tumbled through the darkness and thought, This is how it feels to die. It was an interesting sensation, and he was sorry he couldn't experience it longer. Above him, he could hear Seston shrieking in terror. Below, he heard the old mage muttering to himself, probably trying one last spell. Then, Fizban raised his voice. Featherf. The word was cut off with a scream. There was the sound of a bone-crushing thud as the old magician crashed to the floor. Tasselhoff grieved, even though he knew he was next. The stone floor was approaching. Within a very few seconds, he too would be dead. Then it was snowing. At least, that was what the kender thought. Then he realized with a shock that he was surrounded by millions and millions of feathers, like an explosion of chickens. He sank into a deep, vast pile of white feathers, Seston tumbling in after him. Poor Fizban, Tass said, blinking tears from his eyes as he floundered in an ocean of white chicken feathers. His last spell must have been Featherfall, like Raceland uses. Wouldn't you know it? He just got the feathers. Above him, the cogwheel turned faster and faster, the freed chain rushing through it, as if rejoicing in its release from bondage. Outdoors in the courtyard, chaos reigned. Over here, Tannis yelled, bursting out of the door, knowing they were doomed but refusing to give in. The companions gathered around him, weapons drawn, looking at him anxiously. Run to the mines! Run for shelter! Verminard and the Red Dragon didn't leave! It is a trap! They'll be on us any moment! The others, their faces grim, nodded. All of them knew it was hopeless. They must cover about two hundred yards of flat, wide-open surface to reach safety. They tried to herd the women and children along as swiftly as possible, but not very successfully. All the mothers and children needed to be sorted out. Then Tannis, looking over at the mines, swore aloud in added frustration. The men of the mines, seeing their families free, quickly overpowered the guards and began running toward the courtyard. That wasn't the plan. What was Elistan thinking about? Within moments there would be eight hundred frantic people milling around, out in the open, without a scrap of shelter. He had to get them to head back south to the mountains. Where's Eben? He called to Sturm. Last I saw him he was running for the mines. I couldn't figure out why. The knight and the half-elf gasped in sudden realization. Of course, said Tannis softly his voice lost in the commotion. It all fits. As Eben ran for the mines, his one thought was to obey Pyros's command. Somehow, in the midst of this furor, 
he had to find the green gemstone man. He knew what Verminard and Pyros were going to do to these poor wretches. Eben felt a moment's pity. He was not, after all, cruel and vicious. He had simply seen, long ago, which side was bound to win. And he determined, for once, to be on a winning side. When his family's fortune was wiped out, Eben was left with only one thing to sell. Himself. He was intelligent, handy with a sword, and as loyal as money could buy. It was on a journey to the north looking for possible buyers that Eben met Verminard. Eben had been impressed with Verminard's power and had wormed his way into the evil cleric's favor, but more importantly, he had managed to make himself useful to Pyros. The dragon found Eben charming, intelligent, resourceful, and, after a few tests, trustworthy. Eben was sent home to Gateway just before the dragon armies struck. He conveniently escaped and started his resistance group. Stumbling upon Gilvanas's party of elves the first time they tried to sneak into Pax Thargus was a stroke of luck that further improved Eben's relationship with both Pyros and Verminard. When the cleric actually fell into Eben's hands, he couldn't believe his luck. It must go to show how much the Dark Queen favored him, he supposed. He prayed that the Dark Queen continue to favor him. Finding the green gemstone man in this confusion was going to take divine intervention. Hundreds of men were milling about uncertainly. Eben saw a chance to do Verminard another favor. Tannis wants you men to meet in the courtyard, he cried. Join your families. No! That isn't the plan, Elistan cried, trying to stop them. But he was too late. The men, seeing their families free, surged forward. Several hundred gully dwarves added to the confusion, rushing gleefully out of the mines to join the fun, thinking, perhaps, it was a holiday. Eben scanned the crowd anxiously for the green gemstone man, then decided to look inside the prison cells, Sure enough, he found the man sitting alone, staring vaguely around the empty cell. Eben swiftly knelt beside him, racking his brain to come up with the man's name. It was something odd, old-fashioned. Barum, Eben said after a moment. Barum. The man looked up. Interest lighting his face for the first time in many weeks. He was not, as Turda had assumed, deaf and dumb. He was instead a man obsessed, totally absorbed in his own secret quest. He was human, however, and the sound of a human voice speaking his name was inordinately comforting. Barum, said Eben again, licking his lips nervously. Now that he had him, he wasn't sure what to do with him. He knew the first thing those poor wretches outside would do when the dragon struck would be to head for the safety of the mines. He had to get Barum out of here before Tannis caught them. But where? He could take the man inside Pax Tharkas, as Pyros had ordered, but Eben didn't like that idea. Verminard would certainly find them, and— 
his suspicions aroused, would ask questions Eben couldn't answer. No. There was only one place Eben could take him and be safe outside the walls of Pax Tharkas. They could lie low in the wilderness until the confusion died, then sneak back inside the fortress at night. His decision made, Eben took Barum's arm and helped the man rise to his feet. There's going to be fighting, he said. I'm going to take you away, keep you safe until it is over. I am your friend. Do you understand? The man regarded him with a look of penetrating wisdom and intelligence. It was not the ageless look of the elves, but of a human who has lived in torment for countless years. Barum gave a small sigh and nodded. Verminard strode from his chamber in a fury, yanking at his leather, armored gloves. A draconian trotted behind him, carrying the High Lord's mace, Nightbringer. Other draconians milled around, acting on the orders Verminard gave as he stepped into the corridor, returning to Pyros's lair. No, you fools! Don't recall the army! This will take but a moment of my time. Qualanaste will be in flames by nightfall. Remember! he shouted, throwing open the doors that led to the dragon's lair. He stepped out onto the ledge, peering upward toward the balcony. He could see smoke and flame and, in the distance, hear the dragon's roar. Ember! There was no answer. How long does it take to capture a handful of spies? He demanded furiously. Turning, he nearly fell over a draconian captain. Will you be using the dragon's saddle, my lord? No, there isn't time. Besides, I use that only for combat, and there will be no one to fight out there, simply a few hundred slaves to burn. But the slaves have overcome the guards at the mine, and are rejoining their families in the courtyard. How strong are your forces? Not nearly strong enough, my lord, the draconian captain said, its eyes glinting. The captain had never thought it wise to deplete the garrison. We are forty or fifty, perhaps, to over three hundred men and an equal number of women. The women will undoubtedly fight alongside the men, your lordship, and if they ever get organized and escape into the mountains... Bah! Ember! Verminard called. He heard, in another part of the fortress, a heavy metallic thud. Then he heard another sound... The great wheel, unused in centuries, creaking with protest at being forced into labor. Verminard was wondering what these odd sounds portended when Pyros flew down into his lair. The dragon high lord ran to the ledge as Pyros dropped past him. Verminard climbed swiftly and skillfully onto the dragon's back. Though separated by mutual distrust, the two fought well together. Their hatred for the petty races they strove to conquer, combined with their desire for power, joined them in a bond much stronger than either cared to admit. Fly! Verminard roared, and Pyros rose into the air. It is useless, my friend. Tannis said quietly to Sturm, laying his hand on the knight's shoulder as Sturm frantically called for order. You're only wasting your breath. Save it for fighting. There'll be no fighting. 
Sturm coughed, hoarse from shouting. We'll die, trapped like rats. Why won't these fools listen? He and Tanners stood at the northern end of the courtyard, about twenty feet from the front gates of Pax Tharkis. Looking south, they could see the mountains and hope. Behind them were the great gates of the fortress that would at any moment open to admit the vast Draconian army, and within these walls somewhere were Verminard and the Red Dragon. In vain, Elistan sought to calm the people and urge them to move southward, but the men insisted on finding their womenfolk and women on finding their children. A few families together again were starting to move south, but too late and too slowly. Then, like a blood-red flaming comet, Pyro soared from the fortress of Pax Tharkas, his wings sleek, held close to his sides, his huge tail trailed behind him. His taloned forefeet were curled close to his body as he gained speed in the air. Upon his back rode the dragon High Lord, the gilded horns of the hideous dragon mask glinting in the morning sun. Verminard held on to the dragon's spiny mane with both hands as they flared into the sunlit sky, bringing night's shadows to the courtyard below. The dragon fear spread over the people. Unable to scream or run, they could only cower before the fearful apparition, arms around each other, knowing death was inevitable. At Verminard's command, Pyros settled on one of the fortress towers. Verminard stared out from behind the horned dragon mask, silent, furious. Tanis, watching in helpless frustration, felt Sturm grip his arm. Look! The knight pointed north, toward the gates. Tanis reluctantly lowered his gaze from the dragon high lord and saw two figures running toward the gates of the fortress. Eben! he cried in disbelief. But who's that with him? He won't escape! Sturm shouted. Before Tanis could stop him, the knight ran after the two. As Tanis followed, he saw a flash of red out of the corner of his eye, Raistlin and his twin. I too have a score to settle with this man, the mage hissed. The three caught up with Sturm just as the knight gripped Eben by the collar and hurled him to the ground. Traitor! Sturm yelled loudly. Though I die this day, I'll send you to the abyss first. He drew his sword and jerked Eben's head back. Suddenly, Eben's companion whirled around, came back, and caught hold of Sturm's sword arm. Sturm gasped. His hand loosened its grip on Eben as the knight stared, amazed at the sight before him. The man's shirt had been torn open in his wild flight from the mines. Impaled in the man's flesh, in the center of his chest, was a brilliant green jewel. Sunlight flashed on the gem that was as big around as a man's fist, causing it to gleam with a bright and terrible light, an unholy light. I have never seen nor heard of magic like this. 
Raislin whispered in awe, as he and the others stopped, stunned, beside Sturm. Seeing their wide eyes focused on his body, Barum instinctively pulled his shirt over his chest, then loosened his hold on Sturm's arm. He turned and ran for the gates. Eben scrambled to his feet and stumbled after him. Sturm leaped forward, but Tannis stopped him. No, he said, it's too late. We have others to think of. Tannis, look! Caramon shouted, pointing above the huge gates. A section of the stone wall of the fortress above the massive front gates began to open, forming a huge, widening crack. Slowly, at first, then with increasing speed, the massive granite boulders began to fall from the crack, smashing to the ground with such force that the flagstone cracked, and great clouds of dust rose into the air. Above the roar could be dimly heard the sound of the massive chains releasing the mechanism. The boulders began to fall just as Eben and Barum arrived at the gates. Eben shrieked in terror, instinctively and pitifully raised his arm to shield his head. The man next to him glanced up and, it seemed, gave a small sigh. Then both were buried under tons of cascading rock as the ancient defense mechanism sealed shut the gates of Pax Tharkis. This is your final act of defiance! Verminard roared. His speech had been interrupted by the fall of the rocks, an act that only enraged him more. I offered you a chance to work to further the glory of my queen. I cared for you and your families. But you are stubborn and foolish. You will pay with your lives. The dragon high lord raised Nightbringer high in the air. I will destroy the men. I will destroy the women. I will destroy the children. At a touch of the dragon high lord's hand, Pyros spread his huge wings and leaped high into the air. The dragon drew in a deep breath, preparing to swoop down upon the mass of people who wailed in terror in the wide-open courtyard and incinerate them with his fiery breath. But the dragon's deadly dive was stopped. Sweeping up into the sky from the pile of rubble made when she crashed out of the fortress, Matafleur flew straight at Pyros. The ancient dragon had sunk deeper into her madness. Once more she relived the nightmare of losing her children. She could see the knights upon the silver and golden dragons, the wicked dragon lances gleaming in the sunshine. In vain, she pleaded with her children not to join the hopeless fight. In vain, she sought to convince them the war was at an end. They were young and would not listen. They flew off, leaving her weeping in her lair. As she watched in her mind's eye the bloody, final battle, as she saw her children die upon the dragon lances, she heard Verminard's voice, I will destroy the children. And, as she had done so many centuries before, Matafleur flew out to defend them.
Pyros, stunned by the unexpected attack, swerved just in time to avoid the broken yet still lethal teeth of the old dragon, aiming for his unprotected flanks. Matafleur hit him a glancing blow, tearing painfully into one of the heavy muscles that drove the giant wings. Rolling in the air, Pyros lashed out at the passing Matafleur with a wicked, taloned forefoot, tearing a gash in the female dragon's soft underbelly. In her madness, Matafleur did not even feel the pain, but the force of the larger and younger male dragon's blow knocked her backwards in the air. The rollover maneuver had been an instinctive defensive action on the part of the male dragon. He had been able to gain both altitude and time to plan his attack. He had, however, forgotten his rider. Verminard, riding without the dragon saddle he used in battle, lost his grip on the dragon's neck and fell to the courtyard below. It was not a long drop, and he landed, uninjured, only bruised and momentarily shaken. Most of the people around him fled in terror when they saw him rise to his feet, but, glancing around swiftly, he noticed that there were four near the northern end of the courtyard who did not flee. He turned to face those four. The appearance of Matafleur and her sudden attack on Pyros jolted the captive people out of their state of panic. This combined with the fall of Verminard into their midst, like the fall of some horrifying god, accomplished what Elistan and the others had not. The people were shaken out of their fear, sense returned, and they began fleeing south, toward the safety of the mountains. At this sight, the Draconian captain sent his forces pouring into the crowd. He detailed another messenger, a wyvern, to fly from the fortress to recall the army. The Draconians surged into the refugees, but if they hoped to cause a panic, they had failed. The people had suffered enough. They had allowed their freedom to be taken away once in return for the promise of peace and safety. Now they understood that there could be no peace as long as these monsters roamed Kryn. The people of Solace and Gateway, men, women, and children, fought back using every pitiful weapon they could grab, rocks, stones, their own bare hands, teeth, and nails. The companions became separated in the crowd. Lorana was cut off from everyone. Gilthanas had tried to stay near her, but he was carried off in the mob. The elf maiden, more frightened than she believed possible and longing to hide, fell back against the wall of the fortress, her sword in her hand. As she watched the raging battle in horror, a man fell to the ground in front of her, clutching his stomach, his fingers red with his own blood, his eyes fixed in death, seeming to stare at her as his blood formed a pool at her feet. Lorana stared at the blood in horrid fascination, then she heard a sound in front of her. Shaking, she looked up directly into the hideous reptilian face of a man's killer. The Draconian, seeing an apparently terror-stricken elven female before him, figured on an easy kill. Licking its blood-stained sword with its long tongue, 
the creature jumped over the body of his victim and lunged for Lorana. Clutching her sword, her throat aching with terror, Lorana reacted out of sheer defensive instinct. She stabbed blindly, jabbing upward. The Draconian was caught totally off guard. Lorana plunged her weapon into the Draconian's body, feeling the sharp elven blade penetrate both armor and flesh, hearing bones splinter and the creature's last gurgling scream. It turned to stone, yanking the sword from her hand. But Lorana, thinking with a cold detachment that amazed her, knew from hearing the warrior's talk that if she waited a moment, the stone body would turn to dust, releasing her weapon. The sounds of battle raged around her. The screams, the death cries, the thuds and groans, the clash of steel. But she heard none of it. She waited calmly until she saw the body crumble. Then she reached down, and sifting the dust aside with her hand, she grasped the hilt of her sword and lifted it into the air. Sunlight flashed on the blood-stained blade. Her enemy lay dead at her feet. She looked around but could not see Tannis. She could not see any of the others, for all she knew, they might be dead. For all she knew, she might herself be dead within the next moment. Lorana lifted her eyes to the sun-drenched blue sky. The world she might soon be leaving seemed newly made. Every object, every stone, every leaf stood out in painful clarity. A warm, fragrant southern breeze sprang up driving back the storm clouds that hung over her homeland to the north. Lorana's spirit, released from its prison of fear, soared higher than the clouds, and her sword flashed in the morning sun. Chapter 15 The Dragon High Lord Matafleur's Children Verminard studied the four men as they approached him. These were not slaves, he realized. Then he recognized them as the ones who traveled with the golden-haired cleric. These then were the ones who had defeated Onyx in Zaktsaroth, escaped the slave caravan and broken into Pax Tharkas. He felt as if he knew them, the knight from that broken land of past glories a half-elf trying to pass himself off as human, a deformed, sickly magician, and the mage's twin, a human giant whose brain was probably as thick as his arms. 